שיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to Parsha Talk, the best Parsha Talk ever, the original Parsha Talk. Often imitated, never equaled. Exactly. I am Rabbi Elliot Malmet, speaking to you, still from Highland Park, New Jersey. With me in person is Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, coming to you from Woodstock, New York, and on the phone from Willsboro, New York, that's somewhere near Burlington, Vermont, Lake Champlain, Rabbi Barry Chester. It's great to see you, hear you. Shalom. How you doing? It's great to be here. So what are you doing up there, Barry Chester? Well, we're taking a week vacation in this beautiful setting. We have, we're right on the water, so we can see the lake in front of us and the hills of Vermont across the way. Burlington is just a bit to the north. and I was telling my family today we went on a hike, a sable chasm, that it would be great to wake up every day and just look out on the water like this. Very good. I think I could live like that. Things in Woodstock are doing okay? Things are wonderful. After, after, you know, these isolated months in Manhattan, it's great to get out. I feel bad for the owners of this house we've rented, though, because we're not leaving. We're we're staying here. They're going to have to call the police to throw us out. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're here to talk about the Parsha. This week, two Parshiot, Chukat and Balak. We are combining these two Parshiot to synchronize the liturgical calendar of the diaspora with the land of Israel. Land of Israel, Jews are already reading Parshat Balak, so we are going to catch up with them. Chukat starts out with a passage that is familiar to us from Parshat Parah, this is the set of rules regarding the red heifer. The red heifer, let me take the, the lead here. This is the way that the people of Israel purify themselves, mainly from contact with the dead. The red heifer, a specific animal that is red completely, is burned in a ritual way, slaughtered and burned entirely. And the ashes of the red heifer are mixed with a water, and they become a ritual, you'll forgive the words, detergent. They're a ritual detergent that purifies those people who have the highest degree of impurity, namely the contact with the dead. And so our conversation relating to the, this whole institution is a, is, a, is a conversation relating to the rational and irrational. Uh, Barry, I'd like you to talk about the rational and irrational in Judaism, maybe making mention of Rashi's comment here, and we'll, we'll interact on this, this whole question of, does the rational overrule the irrational? Does the irrational have a place within religious life? Why don't you take it from there? Okay, thank you. So Rashi's comment on Zot Chukat HaTorah, this is a chok of the Torah, 
that the Satan, the adversary in the nations of the world, are going to admonish the Jewish people saying, what kind of a mitzvah is this? It is irrational. And therefore, the Torah explicitly says, yes, it is irrational. It is a decree from God, and we're not allowed to question it or to think too deeply about its meaning. It is what it is. And we have this curious phenomenon where the the ashes are going to purify those who are impure and at the same time make impure everyone who comes into contact preparing the ashes. And it strikes many as being certainly non-rational, although some would claim that it is irrational. And I think what Rashi is reminding us is that even though many of us are on a quest to find out the Tameh Mitzvot, the reasons for the commandments, and we tend to follow only those commandments that make sense to us, that there is a realm in religion where there is a mystery. And as one of the singers that I'm fond of, Iris Dement, used to sing, sometimes we have to let the mystery be, and that's what this ritual is about. That at its core, we have a mystery that we participate in by doing rather than by thinking. Jeremy, how about weighing in on this? I think it's really important that there be, um, that there be uh, an element of mystery. I mean, any serious conception of God is something that's beyond human ken. Like uh, in, in, the, in the words of one of the medieval theologians, if I knew God, I would be God. Right? To understand with a certain kind of thoroughness um, uh, what the divine would be, it is a sort of outrageous theological hubris because part of what it is to be a mortal human being is to understand that there is a mind and an intelligence that is a non-human uh, uh, order to the world. And so being a human being, being a religious human being, means addressing yourself from my perspective of mortality and, and limit, limitedness, finitude and, and physicality towards what is transcendent. It's also, of course, true, though, that... Um, that People um, can't, you know, that's a piece of religion, but as, as a, you know, we are teachers of, of Judaism, you can't be invoking that every day, right? You can't walk around saying, you won't find this meaningful or understand it, but, but you got to do it anyway because it's just, you know, it's just beyond your ken. Uh, I think we, wanna, we want to help people feel that they're attached to living in the light of something that's beyond their, their um their ability to understand, but not too much of that, because then religion becomes um, not just supra-rational, beyond the rational, but like downright irrational and kind of kind of crazy. So um, most most meets vote. Rambam says, "Listen, I, I, I've been able to understand most meets vote, and and if if religion if meets vote don't have ta'amim, then God is portrayed as arbitrary, and that's not good either." I think I think that's precisely where we have difficulty, and I. I in thinking about this, would say, look, uh, we may not know the reasons for it, or the reasons may not be readily available to us because we don't speak in this vocabulary. We don't speak in a vocabulary of blood as a detergent ritual, blood as a purifying thing. We don't speak in languages of sacrifice. We don't speak in these in symbolic ways. But 
for people who did, of course, this was um, tr truly awesome. Look, I mean, we, we, all, we all have things that we relate to and things that we don't relate to, okay? For example, okay, today is July the 2nd. It's the second day of Canada Day in the diaspora, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but people don't understand. You know, the, the I, I, you know me and other Canadians, we talk about the reverence to the Stanley Cup. It's a it's a piece of silver. I mean, people take the cup, they go around with it, they kiss the cup. If you dropped in from Mars and you saw the way people behave with the cup, you'd think this is crazy. Okay, you know, I, I baseball. We talked about this standing up in the seventh inning. Who said it's it's you know it's not rational. In other words, within the culture within the language and within these kinds of folkways, all of these things make sense. There, there is a certain consistency. Yeah, but I, I think that I think that what I think what you're saying, while accurate, is in, in a certain way, it's a little bit um, flat. Here's what I mean by that: um, it, it's absolutely true that we have certain conventions, and shofarot come from a certain kind of horn. And you, you know, you can't mix meat and milk. So, so far, come from a certain kind of horn, but not cows, okay? And you cannot meet, meet, mix meat and milk. And those things make sense to us because mm -hmm. they accurately describe the way that Jews behave. But um, they're, they're conventional. And we've agreed, and we, we don't use cow horns. But if we forbade ram's horns and only used cow horns, that would make sense. If we, if we forbade the separation of meat and milk and said you had to join meat and milk, that would make sense too. But something like, when we say, when I say mystery, what I mean is not only that I find something mysterious because it's not my vocabulary, I mean that it brings my mortal soul into contact with something that I can't quite understand but recognize as beautiful and holy. So let's use the shofar as an example. The, the sound of the shofar, the experience of hearing the shofar, brings you into a certain kind of spiritual zone. And I, I experienced that. I'm sure you have a similar experience where, where you can't describe this. You can't explain it. It's, it's well, it's ineffable. It's undescribable. And, and maybe we are, we are approximating something in the use of the ritual. We're approximating something that, that we can't really describe. Barry, you want to weigh in on that? So yeah, I'd like to add a comment of uh, Rabbi Louis Jacobs, one of the great English rabbis of the um, 20th and beginning of the 21st century. So he divided the commandments into three. There are those that are moral, which we're compelled to do. There are those that are immoral, which we seek ways to change. And then there are those that are non-moral, which we should observe because of the weight of tradition. And the example that he gave for the non-moral commandment was shatnas. And shatnas is this commandment where we're not supposed to mix linen and wool. Those men who have gone to Mo Ginsburg's in Manhattan saw that all the suits had little stickers on them saying that they were inspected for shatnas to make <laughs> sure that no mixing of the linen and wool. Most people that you ask today, especially uh, in the non-Orthodox world, would say that shatnas is a ridiculous commandment, one that has no meaning, and one that we do not need to follow. But Rabbi Jacob suggested is that because it's not a moral commandment, we actually should follow it, because that's part of our tradition. And what speaks to me about this is that there are things that we try to explain 
too much. I think Jeremy was alluding to this, that there is a mystery to our existence, and we have to tap into it sometimes as a mystery and not think all the time that we have to explain it. Yeah. I, I, fascinating. I think, I think look, it's going gonna, it's gonna to compel certain Jews. It's, gonna, it's not going to compel certain Jews. We, we probably, yeah, go ahead. I, I think that's really important. Um, there's 613 weeks vote and innumerable rabbinic expansions. And I think that a religious person, I mean, we're conservative rabbis, so it, it speaks to our communities, but I think, you know, even the communities with the great big black hats and the long black coats, there are things that, that people really emphasize and, and um, yeah. you know, they become like a, just a total master of this or that commandment. And I think that, you know, it's valuable to say um, you pick and choose, not because you're lazy and arbitrary, but uh, you pick and choose because certain things respond, you, you know, your soul resonates more. Some people's souls will resonate more with, with the mysteries. Some people's souls will resonate more with the mathematics of tipat chalav shenafla because they're a little drop of milk falls into the pot and you got to figure out what to do about kashrut. You know, and, and so I, I think it's great that there are 613 mitzvot so we can, can find the ones that speak to us the most. Indeed. Okay, so let's move on. There's so much material in, the, in both of these parts. The death of Miriam. Okay, so let's take a few moments. The people go, and then it tells us, of course, that Miriam dies. She's buried there. So it's at that point that the people turn on Moses because there was no water. And there's a beautiful midrash that says, as um, the people, as Miriam was alive, the uh, uh, the well, Miriam's well, accompanied the people uh, on the journey. Once she died the water stopped, and that's precisely why we have the juxtaposition of the death of Miriam and the story of the complaints about water. Just take a moment to say, Be'er um, Bishut Miriam, you know, it's the schut, the, the, how would you translate Bishut, in the merit of, okay? And uh, you think about so many extraordinary people in our communities, you know, you have something which is at the merit of, someone else, you know, someone's devotion or someone's kindness, etc. And Miriam stands in for that. But this moment of the complaining of water is really uh, another great crisis in Moses' leadership. Um, I, Jeremy, I don't know, do your, do your congregants ever complain to you about lacking anything? <laughs> about, you know, one thing that, um, <laughs> that I miss uh, about, um, about not being in shul, you know, being able to have... They complain about the quality of Kiddush all uh, Well, we have to be careful here because, because we, we don't want to alienate many of our congregants who are watching this, but we're, we're saying this with, with love and joy and, and longing. You know, we miss, we miss this. This is part of the interaction of, of, of rabbinic life. You know, what, what is it that, that really that, that, that drives us um, to, to, to complain? So Moses is told, go ahead, Barry. What I wanted to add is that the, the phrase in the first verse of chapter 20 is kol ha'edah, the entire community. And that's really what's been missing since the advent of COVID-19, is mm -hmm. that our community is diminished because we are not physically with each other. Okay. And that's a real loss. I'm going to use that in my Parsha, my Parsha sheet this week. Okay. That's a great one. Okay. So. So again, Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces. We know how we feel about that. 
And then God says, take your staff, gather them up, you and your brother Aaron, speak to the rock, in, in front of their eyes. We'll stop there, okay? Uh, I don't know about you, but if I was told by God to speak to a rock, I'd, I'd say, what? What? I mean, how do you react to that? Unless, of course, you are saying, of course, I'm, I'm an obedient servant of God. I will do whatever you say. You say, speak to the rock, speak to the rock. Jeremy, you want to? Well, I, I have... Um... I have my own interpretation of the story, which is, was a little bit different, which I'll share with you in a second. You know, our, our listeners might might remember or might want to, to know that the, back in Shemot, there's a similar episode, and there Moses is, is told to speak to Hitharach, rather. And so among the interpretive methods that one might use to understand this story is um, that they're really one story, and some of the Mepharshim uh, say that it is just one story retold twice with different emphases. And some of them would say it's two different stories, and Moses should be totally forgiven because he just repeated what God told him to do back in Exodus. And come on, man, yeah, you're changing the instructions in a very, it's in a in a very uh, uh, subtle way. So Moses really like is 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 completely uh, blameless because he's doing the same things that worked last time. However, there are a number of things about Moshe's actions here which stand in for criticism. One is that he yells at the people and says, "Shimuna hamorim minasela." Listen up, you rotten rebels! And and the punishment was that he that he yelled at them, and he was so ungenerous towards them. Um, the punishment was, you know, will will we will we bring you out? Will we bring you water from this rock? No, it's not us; it's God. But I have a different interpretation, which is as follows: uh, you know, many uh, uh, interpreters read this story and they say, "Oh my gosh, you know, Moshe's punished so harshly." Um, he doesn't get to enter the land, and Aaron, he doesn't seem to do anything, and he's punished too. What's the deal? Uh, I think that actually the Torah is being subtle, and as the Torah is usually subtle, and we're actually knowing that Moses and Aaron get are punished for something else, and that is that Aaron is, is really being punished back from the from the golden calf, and Moses too. Moses, after the golden calf, he, he does something with rocks and, and hitting, and he breaks the tablets. And so here we have a, an episode where Moshe... He's again doing something bad with a rock um, and hitting the rock, and it's an act of violence. But really, the between the lines, if you're paying close attention, in my opinion, is a reference to him breaking the tablets way back there in Shemot. Interesting, interesting. Barry, you want to weigh in on this? So one of the things that struck me this time is that God often gets angry with the Jewish people throughout the Torah, and there never seems to be any criticism of that. But when Moses gets angry, he is punished severely. And in light of our earlier conversation, you know, we, we know and we try to internalize that we're created with Salam Elohim, we're created in the image of God, but we should never think that we act like God, that God's realm of action is very different than ours, and what might work for God doesn't necessarily work for us. I, in my reading of the story, have been influenced by the reading of Jacob Milgram, who connects it with um, the role of the Egyptian magician, and that Moses' sin here was that he appeared like a magician, that, in fact, he was not supposed to speak and talk at the same time, which was 
the way that Egyptian magicians performed their magic. He was supposed to simply act at the rock without speaking. And the way that Milgram understands the speaking at the rock, that that was locational, that he was supposed to address the people when he was supposed to speak before the rock. So we use vidibartem you speak, the object of speaking is the people? Like lefneha selah. Yeah. You know, in the presence of the rock. Interesting. That's where Moses was. He was at the rock. Yeah. Um, but, but he was not supposed to speak and hit the rock at the same time. And so, that in so doing, he committed this grave sin. And it was such a breach of faith that it could not be repaired. Right? There are some things. Excuse me? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So there are some things that we do that simply are beyond repair. That once certain trust is broken, you really cannot get it back. When I used to teach this in high school, I would mention a story that took place when I was a pulpit rabbi. Um, my wife, Carol, used to go shopping at a, a Makola, a, a kosher grocery store in the next town over on Friday morning, and she goes one week and they're closed on vacation. It wasn't quite a vacation, um, but Baratzon, that was done free will, but the mashkiach the young Israel rabbi of the town closed him down because he was selling the tags that identified kosher poultry as kosher to a non-Jewish truck driver who presumably was using them to put them on non-kosher poultry and make a great profit. And what I would ask my students is whether they thought that this guy could open another grocery store in another town. And most of them agreed that anyone who heard the story would not go to that grocery store because you can't repair that trust, right? Kashrut in this instance is based on trust. We rely on the mashkichim. And once the mashkich violates the trust, you can't get it back. Moses, once he appears like an Egyptian magician, cannot undo that. And the only punishment that gets the message across is to make sure that it's Joshua who will lead the people into the land of Israel. Because then they'll know, the, the people that are marching with them, that God is the true leader and not their earthly representative. Well, that's a fascinating interpretation. I think, I think I, I've been persuaded. Although I would add one footnote, which is a friend of mine says, you know, when you're asked how to talk, you know, to, talk to a rock, I mean, how do you talk to a rock? You, a rock only understands hitting. <laughs> that's, that's really big. That's really big. There's a, there's a, a wonderful Hasidic passage of Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev, who says that, um, that, the, that the polarities of um, speech and violence are acted out here, that as a leader, you can usually, you know, this, the Midrash says that Moses uh, smacked the rock once and a few little drops came out and then he smacked it again yeah. and the water came rushing out. Yeah. Um, Levi Yitzhak says that, that, you know, if you're a leader of people, you can sometimes beat them into doing what you want, right. but they're not really going to give you everything they have to give. Exactly. You got to really persuade them to want to give everything right. they have. And no matter how much you hit them, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. Well, I think, I think your, your, your point is, is worth really, you know, thinking over, which is the, the boundary between speech and violence. And look, we, we, we are, we are living in a time when we see that um, happening over and over again, over and over again. But let's move on. Well, go ahead. It's also remembering before we before we leave the story, 
that when we go to the hotel, we speak to a Roth. And most of us don't have any problem doing that. Uh, um, okay. So we have, in addition to the death of Miriam here, the death of Aaron. And I would add, you know, maybe as a footnote, look, there's a reason why Moses is a little bent out of shape. His sister just died. Um, and uh, maybe he has a premonition that Aaron, Aaron's time is, is limited. Uh, you know, uh, never, never an easy experience to lose a sibling and to, to function in a, a leadership role, you know, directly after that. There may be something to, to say that. But they, they move on by Yisumi Kadesh, Israel, Hor Hahar, to this place called Horahar. Moses is told to take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and basically to strip Aaron down and to put the clothing on to Eleazar. It's a, it's a remarkable passage. Um, the death of Aaron is uh, something that is uh, very sad for the people. It says, The people mourn Aaron for 30 days, Kol Beit Yisrael. And I'm thinking of the death of Moses. You know, Moses, when, when he is told he's going to die, he, he, he has a lot of envy. He envies his brother Aaron because uh, everyone loved him. Moses, Moses unfortunately, didn't love him. They only, they only revered him. Okay. Let, let's move on into to Parsha Balaam. I mean, we'll skip over the, the encounter with the Canaanites, the encounter with um, Sichon, Edom, Sichon, and Og, all of which are really, really important, the song of this, the well, we have a few minutes to talk about Balak and Bilam. Who is Balak? Who is Bilam? Jeremy. Balak is the king of Moab, and he hears that, that the children of Israel have come up out of, out of Egypt, and there's so incredibly many of them. And, and, I'll, and I'll turn it to you in a moment, Elliot, to, to talk about your, your theory about the way Balak behaves. Uh, but there are so many of them, they are going to eat me like an ox eats the grass, and I'm in real trouble. So there's a famous guy, actually, maybe the only, maybe there's maybe somebody else that I'm not thinking of, but the only person who, who I think is actually attested, a person in the Torah who is attested outside the Torah and other, in other literature, Bilam is a famous sorcerer. So he hires the most famous sorcerer in the Middle East to come and, and he hopes, curse this people so that they will suffer. So Elliot, tell us a little bit about what you think about Balak and his and his his approach to Am Yisrael. I think Balak is an anti-Semite, as my late grandfather would say, an anti-Semite bastard. Okay, sorry for people. Bastard. And and he comes in a long tradition of anti-Semitin, uh, starting with Pharaoh, who is really the arch anti-Semite. Uh, and in within the the biblical within the canon, we have a few more. But Haman is, of course, the, the culminating anti-Semite. Balak is somewhere in the middle of the continuum between Pharaoh and Haman, uh, because exactly as you said, Jeremy, here is his, his, his way of, of characterizing the people. I mean, it's, it's so offensive. It's so offensive to, to even read it. He says, look, they're going, you, you, you quote it. They're going to mess up my land, right? I mean, how many anti-Semites throughout history have been saying status? And look at the—they're filthy, they're ugly, they're disgusting. The way they—the way they conduct themselves in public, the way they travel, the way—look, 
they, they, all they want to do is chew up the land there. And, and so that's what I say, Balak, you're an anti-Semite. You, you're, you're disgusting anti-Semite. And you hired someone who you thought was an anti-Semite to curse. And you know what? Here's the bottom line. Or the other way around. Those who curse you are cursed. Those who bless you are blessed. And this is the culminating moment linking the, the, the story of Avraham to you know, this moment. Because when Avraham comes on the scene, God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This is the ultimate portent for the anti-Semite. The anti-Semite will ultimately result in his downfall. Barry, you want to weigh in on this? Well, I want to turn to um, Bilam for a moment. So I think Bilam is known for a lot of great words. He has some of the most beautiful passages in the Torah. And one of the phrases is, that he's looking out at B'nai Israel, and he says there are people who dwells alone. They're not reckoned among the nations. And I wonder, Elliot, in light of your remark, whether we see that as some kind of premonition of anti-Semitism. This yes. way, even in the words of Abraha, of looking at the Jews as being different. Yes, I think, I think that, that we, we often you know, have this capacity to, to transform that which, uh, I, I wouldn't put the responsibility on Jews for this. I think that, that you know, for example, the, the incredible success that Jews have in various domains is seen as an asset and seen as a, a kind of mystery. And, and that's exactly, you know, it's an extra power. And, um, you know, we, we would like to uh, assume responsibility for that power, but maybe that is something that is emergent only in the, in the head of someone who sees extraordinary power where it's not rational. Um, this, this whole point I think is quite interesting because Bilam says that, you know, they're not like other people and that might be anti-Semitic and it also might be something we're proud of. Yeah. Because we are, we are ethnically bounded and we like that. I like being ethnically bounded. Um, I, I think that only with ethnic boundaries do you have definition. So it's, I don't want other nations to look at us and say, look at those weirdos. And at the same time, I want us to have a strong sense that we are bounded together and we're not just disappearing in the whole raft of other nations. Interesting. Let's conclude. So the question is, ahead, sorry. So the question is, this is the words of the outsider looking at B'nai Israel. How do we as Jews look at it? Do we actually see ourselves as being different? And what do we do, especially today, to maintain our difference? Or alternatively, are we on this path of assimilation and integration? And in the, I guess we're moving towards the middle of the 21st century already. You know, this is a key question in the Jewish community. How American are we going to be? Or in your case, Elliot, how Canadian? Um, North American. And how, Jewish are we? In, in other words, where are the boundaries? How do we see ourselves in the larger culture? So let me let me let me conclude with with uh, this. Of course, Bilam gives us the, the the sentence that we recite upon entering a synagogue. Matovu alecha Yaakov, Mishkanotecha Yisrael. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob? Your dwelling places, Israel. And along what you said, Barry, which is that is 
the way an outsider sees the people. What is it that we are trying to do when we invoke a verse said by a Gentile prophet about the people of Israel and as we walk into our synagogue? So my theory is we are trying to recreate this, the, the desert experience the minute we walk into the synagogue by, by invoking a desert myth, a desert story. And we're also internalizing what it means to be a people that is looked at from the outside. I don't know if you want to react to that. Beautiful. Thumbs up from Jeremy Kalmanovsky, who is visible here. Barry, are you giving me a thumbs up? Yeah, I think that that when we come into the synagogue, we're invoking it as a prayer. Would that it be so? That what we want to do is create in our synagogue the reality of Bilam's words. That we are Ohalacha Yaakov and Mishkanotacha Yisrael. That there is something valuable in us, and especially when we come together for prayer, when on some level we're addressing the mystery of the divine, we want this to be a true statement, and therefore we say it. You know, people tend to be critical of themselves sometimes, more so than outsiders are, and sometimes it's important to remember that we don't only look at ourselves the way we see ourselves, but we have to look at ourselves the way others see us, and sometimes others judge us much more favorably than we might judge ourselves. Beautiful. I think that's a, it's a wonderful note to end on here as we uh, are, are, are you know, understanding the entry into uh, synagogue life, the entry uh, both into the zone of the summer, of course, which has already begun, uh, thinking about tents and dwelling places, thinking about what we could be and how we are seen. All of these are wonderful things to think about. So... It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Rabbi Barry Chesler, and continue to enjoy your time away. And with that, we'll say to each other and to our four or five or how many listeners,